Welcome to the Someone to Tell It To podcast today. There are so few times we actually have gotten to meet our guests on the podcast. And today, uh, our, our guest, Monica O. Montgomery, is someone we have met in person. She lives in the Philadelphia area and Pennsylvania, and uh, we've been doing a webinar with her uh, throughout the summer. And last week, we got to be in person with her for a morning in Philadelphia. And we were just so impressed with how articulate she is, how much she has to offer, especially on the subject of, of, diverse, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's also a museum curator, and we'll hear much more about her. And that, but we really enjoyed this today, and it was fun to talk with her. So let's just tell you a little bit about Monica O. Montgomery, and she is a museum leader, a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, and a graduate professor who uses her platforms to be in service to society, working at the intersection of equity, community, and diversity. Her newest role is as the director of community outreach and programs with Historic Germantown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She has curated dozens of so social justice themed exhibits experiences and festivals with renowned organizations like the smithsonian arts and industries building south african embassy brooklyn museum portland art museum national trust for historic preservation weeksville heritage center teachers college the new school the t thomas fortune cultural center and so much more Monica is a seasoned public speaker who has honed her talents over two decades in history, art, and culture nonprofits as a two-time executive director, educator, program manager, marketer, fundraiser, event producer, and tour director. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Monica today. We use Buzzsprout to create this podcast, and as a small nonprofit team, we really appreciate how easy they make it to get our guests' stories out into the world. With Buzzsprout, you get a beautiful podcast website, audio players to embed into other sites, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Use the link in the show notes to get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan and to support our show. As the co-founders of Someone to Tell To, we often find ourselves traveling around between meetings and listening sessions, and we often don't really have time for the little things like grocery shopping. I'm sure many of you have had that experience when at the end of a long workday, you'd rather do anything else than shop for groceries. That's why we're happy to give our listeners the chance to get free delivery on your first Instacart order over $35. You'll get the products you love from your local stores in as fast as one hour. There's nothing quite like sitting down at the end of the day to be present for your family over a home-cooked meal, and takeout just doesn't feel the same. So if you find yourself needing groceries and considering getting takeout instead, get hand-selected products delivered straight to your door. Get free shipping on orders over $35 by using the link in the show notes. Well, Monica... What a pleasure it is to have you on the Someone to Tell a Two podcast today. We'd like to start with this question. Um, this is more, more of a personal question about who are some of your heroes? Who are the people who've informed you, who've helped to mold you, who've made a powerful imprint on you to help make you the person you are today? And why? That's a great question. And when I think of heroes and sheroes, um, many come to mind. I'm first going to honor my parents. And I know that's the typical answer everyone gives. But um, my father, Dr. Elvin Montgomery, and my mother, Sandra Brannon, um, have tremendously shaped and molded me to be the woman, the wife, the visionary, the leader that I am. My father is someone before he retired who specialized in organizational consulting, um, capacity building, strategic advising. So I grew up watching him work with organizations. So it kind of just 
runs in the blood and I would always ask questions and he would show me proposals. And so I feel like I got that honest. Um, and also my dad is an appraiser. He often appraised African-American estates of people like Rosa Parks, Carter G. Woodson, Carl Lewis. And so I worked with him on those projects, which developed a passion for history and African-American experience. And then my mom, being an artist and a creative, also imprinted on me, taking me to concerts, museums, um, and all other sorts of creative economy. And so that has really fueled my passion in museums, being a curator um, and a creative cultural producer. So the parents, first of all. Um, I'm very inspired by Dr. Janetta Cole. She is the former president of Spelman College, uh, all-Black women's college in Atlanta. She also is the former director of the African Museum of Art in the Smithsonian Institution, and she's held many other leadership positions. She's a rock star in museums and universities in so many industries, um, and I highly regard her as well. Wow. So it's very obvious where your influences have come from and the work that you're doing today, the kind of parts of all of those, those people have, have influenced you. And that's, that, that really is, that's pretty neat to see. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Well, Monica, we recently had the privilege of participating in a cohort of Pennsylvania nonprofits that had, that attended nine hours of training in diversity, equity, and inclusion that you led. And we were just so impressed by your knowledge and your commitment to the cause and your articulation and compelling leadership on this issue. So as we begin this conversation, we simply wanted to thank you for enlightening and challenging and inspiring, uh, creating this atmosphere that you created throughout those days uh, in the training that you led. And one of the questions we had for you around that is just what inspired you to be such a passionate leader for DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion for, and, and why is DEI so important to you? Sure. So I operate from my lived experience as an African-American woman, um, as someone who knows others and sometimes myself has been on the margins, um, who has been overlooked or censured um, or just disregarded and certainly <laughs> underpaid um, and and underappreciated for the labor I've given. And so coming from that lived experience, coming from the trainings I've done, um, I've been a part of many um, racial equity, diversity and inclusion trainings, facilitations, as well as I have a credential from Oxford University for their cultural leadership um, academy. All of that has really informed the passion I have for changing and transforming ecologies of promise throughout the nonprofit sector. I work in nonprofits, often with cultural institutions, but often just with people who wanna make a difference, who are passionate about that, and who are looking for ways to be in right relationship with the communities they serve. And so it's really important that DEI not just be the croutons on the salad, um, but really the spices that are mixed in with the stew that it is thought of um, and considered and made room for and budgeted for at the very outset. And so I know that a lot of nonprofits struggle because already the work is overwhelming and there's often not enough manpower, budget line item power, and any other kind of resource for doing things that seem extra or tangential to the mission and the vision. But yet, if we are to be the stewards of these nonprofits and champions of the potential, right, that our communities have to come together to serve, right, to, to do greater works and to benefit and uplift the broader brushstroke of audiences, it's really important that we account for all audiences and realizing that often the audiences are black or brown, often the audiences are differently abled or elderly, or the audience mother tongue may not be English, maybe the audience identifies as gender nonconforming or part of the LGBTQAI spectrum. There are so many different identities that we inhabit, and sometimes people feel very misrepresented and unheard in those lived experiences and identities. And I have a passion for making sure that they are mainstreamed and accounted for and that everybody literally has a seat at the table and making sure that nonprofits are truly doing what they say they're doing. So coming from my lived experience, coming from being a three-time recovering executive director, coming from being someone who is passionate about working with organizations in transition, in crisis, I'm here to give all these nonprofits a big old hug and say, we're going to get through it because there is no shame in being in the journey in the process the only shame is staying stagnant and dormant um, so that's where my my passion lies we just want to say after that answer in particular you we we are just um 
so impressed with the way you articulate what you do and and how you articulate it. It's just it's it's really moving. And um, we uh, we just want to say that because you're dealing with such a sensitive subject matter and you just do it in such a kind, compassionate, caring way. I mean, like you mentioned, there's just no shame around entering into these dialogues. Um, and, and we're two of the many leaders who were attending this, this conference that you led. And I think probably everybody who was at the table uh, felt very similarly to the way that we felt. Thank you. Hopefully, if nothing else, there's a feeling amongst nonprofit leaders and, and the workforce that I may engage with of psychological safety, that it's okay to bring your troubles, it's okay to bring your missteps and your mistakes, that there is no shame and no one's going to punitively, you know, uh, slap you on the wrist, but rather we're creating safe spaces for people to iterate and try and challenge themselves to grow and stretch. And that's really the work of consulting, how you can do more than you did before without feeling bad about it. And I said at the beginning of the training, I, I maintain that DEI is not about feeling bad and guilty and sad, but rather taking actions and measurable metrics to advance organizations' capacity. So I appreciate that compliment and I, I radiate it back to you. I'm really interested in the work you all do around listening and taking populations globally and doing that deep listening. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we want to ask you, what are you most proud of in the work that you do as an advocate for DEI? It's interesting. I feel like a lot of my victories are private because I deal with a lot of um, nature of sensitive requests and sensitive issues. And most of the people I consult with, I'm not um, announcing <laughs> that I am working with them, um, be it a, a museum or a school. You know, they've, they're coming to me in confidence and with um, trust, and I'm holding that trust and goodwill. So I'm never like, hey, I got their HR together because <laughs> they were a mess, you know? So like, there's not a lot of um, press releases um, imbued in this, but I will say I'm proud um, to have transformed many institutions who were making egregious errors, um, often of the note of being outright racist or insensitive. Um, who have had low morale in employees and that company culture, and to have created both documents, which I am passionate about, the written word, and an, an action plan and a culture of how they can do better moving forward. So I feel like it's a kind of a, a vague, I'm not going to give a name kind of victory, <laughs> but I am proud to have done that work across a spectrum of institutions that one would have written off as saying, you know what, just shut your nonprofit down, you're never going to make it, to seeing how they can flourish and thrive. Hmm. In your experiences, what are some of the biggest roadblocks or pushbacks to DEI? Leaders thinking that because they have the identity of a privileged white person, that they cannot and should not lead and champion the work, wanting to get a person of color or a person of another disinvested or marginalized identity to be the face of it because they can't because they don't know what it's about and it's not for them to say. So it's kind of a, a weird mix of, oh, I could never because I don't inhabit that identity and oh, I could never because this is really your fight and not mine, right? So one of the, just to use a museum example, the National African-American Museum of History and Culture, part of the Smithsonian Institution, um, the director at the time, who's now the director of the whole Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch, often says, we're not telling an African-American story, we're telling an American story, because African-Americans and other groups of identities of people of color are so intertwined in the way this country was formed and founded and works. We shouldn't see that as, oh, that's their thing, that's their story. You know, maybe if it's the Ethnic Heritage Month, I'll go and visit, but we should see it as a story everyone can find themselves in and find common threads in. So I think it's really important that um, leaders see this as an organizational priority and institutional imperative and not something that is done for, through, and by people with ethnic identities or the lived experiences of whatever issues are trying to be resolved and people get behind it, putting their money where their mouth is. And again, not seeing it as like, yeah, when we have the time, when we get an extra grant, we'll do this, but realizing this is how we can weave this into every element um, of our of our institutional outreach. I would say those are two or three of the, the common um, resistance areas that I encounter. When you meet resistance by leadership, um, what, what, what are some of your strategies for dealing with that? 
for helping them to see things differently, to, you know, be open to uh, more, you know, more diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in their organization. It's interesting. Oftentimes, if I'm in a group of, you know, a mixed company group where it's like, here's all staff and all volunteers <laughs> and the executive team, I try to separate the groups um, into different <laughs> rooms if possible, but at the very least different sections of the room, bits from tables, and talk to each of the groups that are feeling um, resistance and or feeling frustrated and overwhelmed. What are their greatest fears? And let's do some almost uh, scenario planning. What happens if you do nothing? <laughs> and what happens if you do something? And trying to envision the doing something um, as the clear and present option that should be chosen and how to make what seems large and intractable into bite-sized chunks that can be taken to move toward a goal. If it's uh, where I have the privilege and the pleasure of working with a board of directors and a leadership, I often try to get them in small group as well um, and help envision, you know, what are the highest and the best outcomes that happen, whether it's it's different things that motivate people, right? So if it's, oh, we'll be have, you know, good perception in the world, we'll get press for this, we'll get accolades for this, we are a model maker in our sector. Sometimes you have to come at people that way to say like, you really should do this. Or if it's, you're in crisis, everybody is upset, what can you do to stabilize the situation? Trying to imagine kind of a future calm moment when things have stabilized, that can be another incentive. Um, or at the very least, it's thinking, do you want to keep having your organization be homogenous, right, and out of touch with the people that you're serving and seen as um, not diverse, right? Again, that public perception is so important. Institutional body language is something else we talked about. So if it is the case that you all are not diverse in your leadership and anywhere else in your staff, and that has caused the ire and the distrust and the bad vibes amongst the community you're working with, how do we remedy that? Because you don't want to keep on that course. So sometimes it's kind of, here is the scary thing that'll happen if you do nothing. Sometimes here's the beautiful utopian future if you do something. And often it's a small group conversation to get people out of that feeling of hesitancy um, of speaking up in, in a larger group setting. So I know this has like become kind of a hot topic lately. Um, it just how do you measure diversity, equity, and inclusion? I feel like it's, it's a number of things that can be measured and it's also getting a feeling around change and having a transparency in change management. So certainly, you know, if, if we were to do a, a DEI audit, right, there are certain things you look at myself or any consultant might, you know, try to observe what is the um, company culture? Have there been um, things put in the comment box or what has been said to HR, their complaints around harassment or microaggressions, right? So you could kind of look at what is being said by the people who work there. You could look at what's being said by external forces, people in your industry, people in the press, community members. You can measure certain things. So a lot of times when people think DEI, they're just thinking of hiring and retention. What is the pipeline? How many applicants did we get when we shared the job on you know, diversejobs.com or, you know, hispaniccareers.com. Are we getting traction from these platforms, from these areas for applicants? What is the diversity of the applicants that are applying? How do we make job descriptions more equitable and scrub them um, to do what's called blind hiring, uh, which is often where, and, and there are many, many versions of this, but a system where people can um, submit their resumes, their cover letters, and it extracts any sort of uh, personalized data that may be judged, whether that's an address and a zip code, whether that's a name um, or any sort of um, gender pronouns. And so it's kind of a, a system where things are being filtered and you're receiving all of the information without the identity markers so that a fair decision can be made. You can certainly look at the recruitment and retention. You could look at if there are employee resource groups um, or other support systems for employees with certain affinities and lived experiences. So this often happens in corporate DEI. You'll have um, the African-American group, the LGBTQ group, the Asian, Southeast Asian support group. So that is another facet of it. But I think beyond measuring, because I think we have to come out of the instinct to try to codify things to say we are doing it right. It's a general sense and a consensus 
that an organization um, is being a good neighbor, is being ethical, is doing right internally and externally. And that can be gotten through anecdotes, that can be gotten through constant feedback and open town halls, that can be elicited in a variety of ways that don't necessarily fit into a numerical metric, um, but they still take the pulse of the people. That was a long answer. <laughs> that's a good one. That's, that's quite all right. We'll, we'll say this just as a result, and, and those who are directly uh, related to someone to Teletu's community know that we are in the process right now of hiring a director of development. And uh, as a result of us, Michael and I, attending your, um, your seminars, we added some DEI language in this job description that was posted, and then we reposted it. And uh, we, we had a much more diverse pool of candidates to choose from. And we have you to thank for that. And um, it's just not something that probably we just weren't aware of it enough and, and really hadn't thought it through. But as a result, again, of having listened to you, it just it caused um, a change to happen in us and, and in our organization. And, and we hope to um, have this become more and more, as you mentioned earlier, baked into our culture here at Someone to Tell It To. Amazing. I'm going to reverse that applause back on you uh, because as people who do listening work, <laughs> it's great that you listened, right? And it's great that you're incorporating in something that I said had a, a court of relevance that you could immediately put into practice. And hopefully you will keep for all other searches and, and, and you know, recruitment deep doing that and even expand upon that. So I'm glad uh, that the wisdom is working. Well, we, we hope we did listen well and uh, that um, that what we heard uh, we, we really have taken to heart, and uh, it's something we've been supportive of anyway, but you helped to just kind of coalesce that for us and know how to speak more, uh, you know, more coherently about it to, to, to you know, more forcefully even, uh, and uh, we appreciate that so much, so thank you. So we want to ask, as, as an organization is considering, you know, it's, you know, where, where it is with, with DEI, what kind of questions, what sort of questions should they, an organization be asking as to knowing how they're doing, how to make it better, how to, uh, you know, just bring some, you know, some more enlightenment in, into the situation and the organization? I mean, what are the questions that need to be asked? I think... It's really depending on the organization and its goals, right? So one of the things I ask um, you all and all the other beautiful nonprofits that joined in this doing DEI convening um, is what project do you want to work on? So of course, if, if I had a full consulting suite of hours, <laughs> I probably would have um, asked a different set of intake questions. But my thing was, what is going wrong slash what do you want to work on? And if we were to reverse engineer that, if this were a kind of more extended, protracted process and lead up, I might ask, what's going wrong? What do you want to go better? And then you would give me your version. I'd probably ask several other stakeholders of that, both high in the organization and in the rank and file, and then kind of amalgamate to see, here's what I think we could work on and endeavor to do together. Sometimes those match up, but sometimes it's different. There are oftentimes things that leadership is out of touch with that are happening um, with, I'm saying the rank and file that might be slightly disrespectful, but with people on the front lines <laughs> um, and the, the issues and concerns they have, often it's feelings of not being heard, not being valued, you know, not enough pay. And those are things you're gonna get um, regardless of DEI in any kind of labor situation, but understanding if people are trying to improve um, what's happening inside the organization and the infrastructure and the internal workings, or if it's more of the external facing, how we are seen in the light of the public. That's usually kind of my first line of defense is, are we working inside? Are we working outside? And if you say both, what is the priority and how do we then force rank? What can happen there? Um, I often come with a set of uh, multiple choice <laughs> questions and some open-ended essays for clients to do a self-assessment or for me to do an intake. Um, some of that is asking them, have there been instances incidences in the past that have been unresolved, right? So in incidences where anything has happened, right? And maybe there was an HR action, maybe there wasn't, but it just got kind of bowled over in light of, we have to keep doing business. And those are things that can fester and grow that need to be addressed. Um, depending on the size of the staff, I might ask about the organizational culture. Nonprofits oftentimes tend to be small and mighty. There's still a culture there, but it's not something that is um, 
kind of its own um, facet that needs to be developed, but really so more so improved with team building and trust um, and everybody showing up and bringing their best. So there's a lot <laughs> of things that can be asked, but my favorite question and the most urgent ones is, you know, what's going wrong and what do you want to work on in the time together? We could probably argue that those two questions are questions we should always be asking um, because growth is always there for the taking. Like we always have an opportunity to grow and to become a better version of ourselves and a better version of our organizations. So um, I think those questions should be front and center. Yeah. And even, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to say things are going wrong, although oftentimes they are, but sometimes I'll phrase it as, do we need to work on remedy or refresh, right? So refresh is, are we looking at best practices, how to be our best nonprofit self if everything is going swimmingly, no one has any qualms, let's do a refresh session. Let's go over, you know, um, topics and tactics and definitions if that is desired or dive into a specific facet of DEI. Or if there's something that needs remedy, let's figure out what it is and how to work on it together. And usually it's a, a partner of them doing work and I'm doing work and we're all working on things together for, for the outcome and also working on the communication strategy of how this work will be made transparent and visible. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Monica, most if not all of our listeners wouldn't have attended your seminars the last couple of weeks. And, and so maybe you could give us a little bit of a synopsis. One of the phrases that captured us the most during the training you led was this one and you called it institutional body language what does institutional body language mean to you and how is it manifested in organization and cultures sure well i want to give credit to um the amazing group of consultants and individuals that coined that phrase um, for me to then extend its use um, and i had you all look at their rubric they're called the empathetic museum group. Um, there are so many people involved, but notably um, Gretchen Jennings, Stacey Mann, Janine Bryant, Kaylee Bryant-Greenwell, and a bunch of other consultants that are, <laughs> that are popping out of my head with their full names. But um, those folks have forged a model and a rubric for museums. But if we flip it on its ear, any sort of nonprofit to assess how they're doing. This is mostly assessing the internal um, with a little dash of external. And they use it in a way of looking at what are the actions the institution is taking that are communicating, right? Everything we do, even if it is a silence, speaks volumes, you know? So for instance, um, there's someone in my life that's having a health challenge. Um, and anytime I interact with them, I am asking them, hey, how's your health? How's your health? How are you feeling? Have you been to the doctor? Did you take your medication? What did they say? What did they prescribe? What are the follow-up? Is this something that is genetic? Is it something that is contagious? I'm asking a lot of focused health questions, which they are deftly ignoring <laughs> and saying, oh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Did you look at the news? Can you believe the weather? So they're hitting me back with, not hitting me, but you know, they're, they're, they're also um, asking their own suite of kind of deflective questions and answers, which ignores my health prompts, because they are doing that, I'm beginning, you know, my super sensitive consultant soul is thinking, oh, things are not going well. It's probably worse than I thought. They're ignoring their health um, or they're not addressing it. And maybe I need to somehow get more involved or drive them to the, <laughs> the health facility. And all of that to say, 
something's being communicated in the absence, in the ignoring, in the deflection. Similarly, the way we are personally, when there's a topic at hand that we don't really want to talk about and we deflect, institutions can and often do the same um, with their voice and with their silence and with the absence. And so I would say my working definition to build upon the work the Empathetic Museum Group has done is how is an institution presenting itself to the public with its actions and inactions and how is that being perceived so for instance and this might hit uh, very close to home but bear with me there's a method to the madness there are some spaces nonprofits entities that when something happens in society or if there is a certain celebration of an identity, they will change all of their branding and their social media to match the colors of that happening in society or that identity celebration. For instance, if it is Pride Awareness Month, many corporations and some nonprofits will change their logos to have the rainbow because that rainbow color is associated with LGBTQAI folks and pride. And that is accepted, that is widely practiced, that is seen as a good move for an organization to do. Or the way that recently the war in Ukraine have made many organizations add the blue and yellow flag of Ukraine somewhere on their page to their physical building or on their logos and marketing materials because they wanna be aligned with that fight because it is a righteous cause or seen as such. However, there is a noted absence and silence when other things are happening in the world. When certain people, I'll say black people are often targeted and hunted down and killed by police, by extrajudicial forces and vigilantes. I don't see the same kind of solidarity in these institutions. It's often as if it didn't happen because it's never mentioned on their platforms. And there are many other instances of things that happen, tragedies and natural disasters that don't get that same shine. So it's important to realize that with every vote of confidence we're looking to get, when I say we institutional, we as stewards of nonprofits, we have to also realize the symbols that we're sending by endorsing and championing things and by not doing so can also feel like a slap in the face to some communities, if that makes sense. It does make sense. It very much does. We're gonna change the, 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 the topic just a little bit here and talk about museums. We'd love to hear what some of your favorite museum exhibits that you curated have been, what you're most proud of, and, and why. Oh, museums. My heart beats. <laughs> I feel like all the museums I work with are like my cousins and my family. <laughs> um, so, yes, the, the, the other hat of the many that I wear, you know, diversity practitioner, graduate professor, keynote speaker, and museum curator. And I really like being a curator because someone once asked me who wasn't kind of up on uh, titles in museums, like, what the hell is a curator? What do you do? I'm like, I'm so happy that you asked. I said, you know how you go into some spaces and there's something on the wall. Sometimes it's words, sometimes it's pictures, sometimes it's multimedia, sometimes it's prompts or things to get you thinking. I'm like, I am the storyteller for those walls. So I literally help conceive of a story, a narrative, a cohesive theme for the walls of museums, of galleries, of any space that'll have me. <laughs> I've curated in laundromats, right? I've worked with elementary schools. I have no qualms. I'll do the, the, the high-low. I'm happy to bring um, the narrative and the experience to the people. And to that end, I'll say one of the things I'm most proud about is for many years, my one of my recovering executive directorships, for many years, I started, founded, and led a mobile social justice museum where we would do social justice exhibit pop-ups in different places where people were. Uh, we worked in homeless shelters and elementary schools and laundry mats and rec centers and fancy places and not so fancy places, doing exhibits about the causes people cared about, whether that is um, indigenous uh, rights and land fracking, whether that is feminism or climate change or school to prison pipeline or how we treat animals and treat the earth um, or Black Lives Matter or any 
range of topics. I was able to curate over 40 plus exhibits about these issues um, at their intensity, roughly between 2017 and 2020. And doing that work and traveling experiences around the country, um, it was exhausting and exhilarating, um, but really taught me a lot about people and how to connect with people. And number one, if you want someone to have a transformative experience, you can't just put up something and let people look and make of it what they make. There has to be a lot of interactivity and facilitation. And that's where <laughs> my hat as being a former classroom teacher, I know how to get folks talking and pairing and sharing and engaging. And it was really a joy to get people to say what they would do if they had the chance and the choice, what they would say to elected officials and others in power, if they could speak to them and what they felt they could do right now, right, to make themselves be an advocate for good causes. And so we were able to crowdsource hundreds and thousands of responses in those social justice exhibits um, that fueled further work. So that's probably one of the things I'm proudest of. Um, I would say the second is the work I just wrapped up with the Smithsonian Arts and Industries Building. I was a social justice curator for the Futures exhibit, which is all about the future we want and not the future we fear. And how do we forge a future that is hopeful, sustainable, and equitable? Sounds super high-minded. It was. It is. Uh, our director, Rachel Goslins, told us, if you're a pessimist, keep it to yourself, leave it at home. Bring your optimistic vibes because we are here to make the public feel optimistic again. And so as a social justice curator, there were a lot of different things that were being discussed that were issues in society and solutions to them. Um, you know, if we think of like, this exhibit had technology, right? We had partners from Amazon Web Services, Meta, all the big technology companies. We had a flying car, we had robots, we had historical objects, we had art, we had things in the augmented reality sphere and things on the ground and a lot of context about what's coming in the next three generations, in the next 75 years, what might you see in your future, right? So we had the high-speed magnetic levitated train called the Hyperloop that is being championed by Richard Branson of Virgin. There's all these things that are coming and some that are at hand already that we got to present and I got to put the social justice spin on what people might see and how this solves and resolves the issues that we have. So that was really exciting. I did a lot of programming with that, a lot of creative curating with that. Um, and that, you know, that's enough. I'm not gonna give you like three, four, five, and six, but I've done a lot of things I've been proud about. I'm always proudest when I'm touching people and getting people to react and interact and imagine themselves as change makers. Again, we just applaud your work both with DEI and, the, and being a curator. Um, as you were just describing there, one of the things I'd like to ask is just, and just kind of merging both both of those um, career choices and career paths for you is how do you remain both positive and hopeful and also um, just relevant to the topics at hand? I mean, you had mentioned just whether it's Ukraine or Black Lives Matter, there's just so many issues um, to deal with and to, to speak out about. Uh, but how do you do that and also remain hopeful and positive? That's an interesting question. I think, um, number one, I, I filter the news that I intake. <laughs> um, and so you're not going to see me watching so much nightly news, although that is a viable medium. Um, and nothing against that. I went to school for journalism, so I understand you got to hit with the sensational stuff. But I try to um, do more reading than watching um, so I can process in my own time and understand and digest many perspectives of what is happening in the world to inform myself, to inform my clients, um, and to be an informed citizen. I think I have a general optimistic bent, although there are days <laughs> that I'm so frustrated both with you know, the folks that I'm working with and the, the kind of powers that be and the tragedies in the world. Um, they do make me cry, they do make me sad. I was very sad during the pandemic at the height of um, all of the killings uh, of my people. And that always weighs heavy on my heart. And I did a lot of exhibits dedicated to folks like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Eric Garner and others. Um, I'm glad, at least to my knowledge, that isn't happening as intensely, or maybe it's just not being reported, but I'm glad it seems like that season has somehow been resolved and I hope it stays that way. Um, I'm someone who, you know, again, my approach is like, okay, what went wrong? What's the remedy? I believe there is a remedy, there is a solution, there is a way to navigate everything. And there's nothing that is so broken that it can't be 
fixed. And so with that core inner value and belief, um, I approach everything as a challenge um, and things that are um, resolvable immediately. I try to work at that. Things that are a longer game, I try to be thoughtful and mindful about that. Um, I am a, a woman of faith. I'm a Christian. So I have a strong faith practice that undergirds me. Um, I have a very loving family and friend group. Um, and I like to do fun things. I'm not just sitting here all day reading the news sad about diversity stuff. I go to comedy shows, right? I walk in, in nature. I go see a lot of movies. I'm probably going to go see a movie after this. I try to do things to keep me uplifted and creatively stimulated so that I can keep um, serving and doing the work. That's a phrase that we're going to hold on to today. It's just that there's always a remedy. Yeah. Like that. Like that very much. The poet uh, Amanda Gorman, uh, who came to great fame and renown through the reading of the poem she wrote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's uh, inauguration as president and vice president in January 2021, has written this. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. And I think that goes along with the remedy. That, that, that's part of the, you know, you seeing remedies in things, light in, 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 in everything. So we saw a photo of you. The reason we, we share this is we saw a photo of you posing by that quote on the wall of the exhibition in the Futures uh, That Unite Hall in um, the Sm Smithsonian Arts and Industries Building in Washington, D.C. that you, you mentioned just a few moments ago. So tell us, please, what does that quote mean to you? So maybe you've already partially answered it, but if there's anything you'd like more to say about that. Yeah, well, I, I first want to say um, thank you for doing your digging and seeing um, that picture of me. That was opening night at the Futures exhibition where the vice president and all sorts of luminaries and everyday people who are also rock stars were in attendance. Um, I got to give um, a tour and a hug to Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, who is the African-American woman scientist that found the protein spike that prototyped uh, the COVID vaccination or the COVID vaccine that many of us have taken today that allows us to gather safely in public. And so meeting people like her, we, we highlighted her as one of our featured futurists um, and others who are just amazing solutionaries who have remedy, who have light, uh, was really powerful. So that quote on the wall was part of my social justice curation. When we would be in curatorial meetings and there were four curators, there was an art curator, a history curator, a technology curator, and me, the social justice curator. And everyone's like, question mark, what do you do? What do you bring? And I'm like, look, I'm gonna bring what the people wanna see, right? I'm gonna bring to, to the everyday what this could be so that it doesn't just turn into a technology convention. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? We have these walls, they're blank. I know Smithsonian loves a blank wall, <laughs> but that is an opportunity. That is real estate in prime space that we can transmit culture and value and possibility and solutionary thinking. And I said, let's create a suite of quotes, right? And not necessarily create, but rather let's crowdsource. So what we did, this exhibit, I'm all over the place a little bit. This exhibit was part of the 175th anniversary of the Smithsonian, which happened last year. And so it was a year long celebration, probably still celebrating. And by celebrating, I mean fundraising <laughs> and also just shining a light on the good works around the Smithsonian. So our exhibit was designed to be pan-institutional where we received artifacts and art and history and collections items from each of the 19 different museums, research centers, and collections within the Smithsonian. So Smithsonian is not one museum, it's 19 represented by one body. And those museums are all over the country, mostly concentrated in the National Mall in DC, also some in New York, some up in Cambridge, some down in Panama. So there's a lot of cool things going on, but we were meant to highlight what those spaces were doing. So we got our collections items, that was fun, that was cool, we're putting those together. But I'm like, what we're not highlighting is the people, the labor force behind this 175 year old institution, who keeps this place running? Who keeps it up and how do we hear from them and include their voice? Again, valuing voices of diverse people is to me a key part of the equation. So I created this crowdsourcing sweepstakes where people would enter their favorite quotes about the future or about the hopefulness of it. We would choose from the hundreds collected. I think we choose about, we chose about 50, uh, it might have been 
yeah, it might have been 15 or so in each hall um, and put those on the wall related to the hall theme. So people would feel included, both the janitor and the curator, right? Both the registrar and the intern would feel included in the exhibit, be more likely to visit and have a repeat visit. And that was a great success. We put it out throughout Smithsonian wide. Um, it is very challenging to get anything sent all Smithsonian wide, but after a few months of advocacy, it did. And we got a great groundswell of quotes and we were able to, on that opening night and before that opening night, have a special staff opening where people could come see the exhibit and see the quotes that made it on the wall. And it was just a joyous moment of celebration for everyone. And I, not to say I threw the, the election, I submitted that Amanda Gorman quote, but it was a blind process. You kind of like put what institution you were with and the quote, you didn't put your name. And I was so happy that one of my colleagues actually chose it. So it was a joyous moment because I love Amanda Gorman. I love that quote. I cried when she read that poem at inauguration and my quote made it on the wall. Well, congratulations! That's a, that's a wonderful story and a a, a bit of a, a bit of it that we we had no idea. So that's that's great. Have you had a chance to meet her? I haven't. We invited her to the exhibit. I like emailed her like, "I'll give you a tour. Please come." She's you know booked and busy and famous, um, but I know that one day our our stratospheres will connect, and I admire her very much. We hope that happens. Well, our, our time, unfortunately, is probably winding down, but we just would like to ask this, and it's just relation, in relation to our listening nonprofit, and what does good listening look like to you, and how is listening to others inform the work that you do to affect social change, and what have you learned through listening to others' experiences that has had a powerful impact on the way that you teach, the way that you curate, and the way that you advocate? That's three in one. <laughs> All right, let's see. Um, <laughs> Good listening to me um, looks like being socially responsive, which is a term I use, meaning whatever is happening in the world is somehow being addressed in your space, in your nonprofit, in your small group. You are not deaf and blind to the woes of the world and the joys of the world. And so what is happening in the world in current events is somehow imprinting on what is happening in our smaller spaces and what we do about it. I believe that we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I'm sure you've heard that before. People should do more listening than they do talking. Um, and to your other question that I think was about like, what role does that take in my work? As a consultant, my role is to do deep, deep, deep listening um, and then rather rapid solutionary thinking on behalf of organizations, which are just collections of people trying to move in the same direction, right? So I need to listen and be attentive. I need to understand the subtext of what's being said and what's not being said. Sometimes people can only reveal their true feelings in certain rooms, but they'll give a hint at what that is. And so I consider myself an intuitive and empathetic listener um, and someone that tries to always deliver um, on that concept of remedy for the clients, for my immediate family and friend group. And so I'm excited to listen more and have learned so much from you all in that past training that's going to inform future client work. Yeah, we just wanted to probably just affirm everything that you're, you're sharing there because you are a dynamic listener. Um, when we took this seminar with you, I mean, you would hear our problems and some of the struggles that we're dealing with here at someone to tell to, and then be able to kind of talk us off the ledge and help us to find some remedies and some solutions. And it was actually just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you actually, you absolutely have a gift to do what you do. You do. You, you challenged us in non-challenging ways, and, and meaning that we didn't feel challenged, but we knew we were being challenged uh, in, a, in, a, in a very positive way to, to think you know, more, more broadly, more, more deeply, uh, more focusedly. And uh, you, you are gifted at that, and we want to thank you. Uh, so much. Because that means I did my job <laughs> and yeah, that we, makes me happy. <laughs> you did. We, we believe you did. We believe you did. Now, just one more question. You said that maybe after this, you're going to go to a movie. Uh, what movie would you like to see? What kind of movies do you like? Something fun and silly. I'm thinking about Bullet Train just because it seems to have a lot of action sequences and like like hijinks so i'm gonna see something not serious at all that is gonna keep me laughing <laughs> we hope it does we hope you enjoy it tremendously we all need that we all need that a lot <laughs> so 
Thank you. So, Monica, we really appreciate uh, you being with us. This, this time went very quickly. It was good to talk with you again, to see you and to talk with you again. And uh, we have enjoyed the summer, spending you know parts of our summer with you. And um, it's great to have you on the podcast today and to have this conversation to share with the world. So thank you. Monica, if people would like to learn a little bit more about your work and if they would like to um, invite you in to lead some trainings and seminars, how would they do that? Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Hopefully everyone's on it now. Um, Look me up, Monica O. Montgomery. Don't forget the O. There are many Monica Montgomerys, but only one Monica O. And it would say, believes museums should be in service to society, social justice curator, community engager. Uh, With a big smile, that's me. All right. right. Thank you. Thank you. That so was much. wonderful. Paul. Thanks, guys. This was so much fun. <laughs> it was it great was. to be Thank on your you. podcast, and I'm I'm cheering for you all. Keep in touch, okay? Okay, we, we will. will absolutely enjoy the movie. Yeah, have fun. Bye. Bye. One of the things that really uh, stood out to me, and I think it did to you as well, because you commented on it, was that uh, Monica said that there is always a remedy for a problem, always a remedy uh, for something that uh, that that's not going so well. And that's, that's hopeful. And that's good to hear. And sometimes I, I know that we can get very bogged down and like, we don't see a solution. We don't understand how something could possibly work. We don't understand how it could possibly get better. But uh, that is just kind of a reminder and an encouragement that, yeah, there are solutions. She's dealing with such a sensitive subject and I think every organization is is wrestling with this topic now um, to make sure that we're being as inclusive as we can be. And she does it in such a sensitive, kind, compassionate, understanding way. Um, we didn't feel any sense of uncomfortability with her. And, um, and I think it, it's challenging, uh, but it's inspiring. And I was also impressed when we were with her, you know, throughout this this summer series that we've been involved with with her, that she 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 took very individualized in um, interest in each of the nonprofits. These were nonprofits throughout you know throughout representing the state of Pennsylvania. She took you know she took time with each one of us to 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 understand and hear where our challenges are, to hear what's going well to help find remedies for things that aren't going so well. And that was very impressive. And she did that with great patience, uh, great, you know, not, no, not, no judgment, uh, just uh, grace and, and empathy and, and, and a willingness to, to be encouraging and reassuring and to help. And so we'll just say that. this. If you're a leader of an organization, we just strongly encourage you to find Monica on LinkedIn, as she mentioned, and, and to contract with her. Uh, get her into your organization to have some of these, these conversations around some really sensitive subject matters. Uh, we can guarantee she'll help you. Um, she'll lead to change, as she did with us. That's right. Well, as you know, we're a nonprofit here at Someone to Tell To, and so there are just so many ways that you could support our work and help us grow our following, grow our audience, and ultimately to serve more people. And one of the ways that you can do that is through our Patreon page to support this podcast as we continue to hopefully help the world to listen better. In addition to that, one of the things that I know I do, uh, as you've if you've listened to our episodes for a long time now, you know that Michael and I listen to a lot of other podcasts and I love to take episodes that I, I enjoy and then just share them with four, five people that I know. And so if you could do that for us, that would help us so much. If there's one episode in particular that you've connected with deeply and you think of five friends who might also benefit, just hit, hit that share button with five people. That would make a tremendous difference as we grow our audience. So thanks so much. So we want to thank you today for being with us again, and we look forward to the next time. And until we listen again. <laughs>